Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. Can we pray as we turn our attention to God's word this morning? God, I just thank you and praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. I praise you for sending him to rescue us from our sin. I thank you, God, that each Christmas you remind us of the hope of heaven. And we just want to thank you and praise you for this inexpressible gift. I pray, God, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would work through me, that you would work in each one of us by the power of your spirit. God, that you would grow and strengthen our faith today. God, lead us into to worship and celebration of you and what you've done. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Well, um, Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Yeah, good job. Excellent. Now I feel like we're starting to get into the you know, Christmas spirit. Um, I love Christmas. I love Christmas. It's, it's super exciting. Right now we're in this uh, sort of season of anticipation, right? Where Christmas season is just starting, Depending on what culture you're in, I've heard that some cultures decorate as early as September. I won't mention any names of any people in the church who may or may not be decorating excessively early. (laughs) Uh, This is a time of anticipation though, right? Christmas season is just starting. We are looking forward to this whole time. I I personally love Christmas. I love Christmas. Uh, the time that we get to spend together as a family. I love our Christmas traditions. I love our, our devotions that we do, our Advent devotions. I love the gift that we give to Jesus on Christmas. I love all of the, the decorating and the, the good food and the goodies and uh, rocking the Christmas music. Who else is excited for Christmas in here? Do we have anyone excited for Christmas? Lots of people excited for Christmas. What are you most excited about? What are you looking forward to? What are you anticipating? Give me, give me some things you're looking forward to this Christmas. Just shout them out. Be bold. Smiles on people's face. I like that. And I, I heard a bunch of other ones, but I didn't catch them. What were they? Cookies, right? Like Layla, my two-year-old, she's obsessed with cookies. Cookie. Yeah, what else? Pies. Ugly sweaters. And not ugly ones, too, Right? Um, what else? This is good. What? Gingerbread houses. Yeah. Anything else? Anyone looking forward to like some time off? Maybe if you get some, yes. Time off from school. Maybe could be on the list, right? Fun with family or without family, you know, (laughs) either way. There's so many things to look forward to at Christmas time. Is anybody excited for presents? I mean, thanks for being honest. I'm looking forward to it. It's fun. It's not just fun to receive gifts. I think that might be a love language. I love giving gifts. Do you love seeing the look on someone's face when they open up a gift that they just love? What a joy. What a blessing. It's true. It's more blessed to give than receive. There's so many things that we look forward to at Christmas time, all these uh, traditions. But we list all these things. That's not the real meaning of Christmas, right? What's the reason for the season? I'll give you a hint. 
subtle, very subtle. Jesus is the reason for the season, amen? Without Christ, there's no Christmas. That's why our, our series is called Celebrating Christ at Christmas, because that's where we want our hearts and our minds to focus in all that we do with our family and friends this Christmas season. But everybody knows, right, that Jesus is the reason for the season? Everybody knows that? No, I'm sorry, not everybody knows that. Every year since 2011, the American atheists rent billboard space in different parts of the country, and they call people to celebrate without Jesus. Here's just a few examples. You know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. Or keep the Mary, dump the myth. Or just skip church. It's all fake news. What are these signs saying? They're saying you don't need Christ to celebrate Christmas. They're, they're saying that the Christmas story is a myth. It's not true that believing it is unreasonable. Are they right? Is it a myth? Is it unreasonable? No, it's not. The Christmas story isn't a myth. It's true history, and believing it is very reasonable. And because it's true, if you remove Christ, there's nothing really to celebrate. This morning, I want to take a look at one aspect of the Christmas story, which I believe is strong evidence for its truthfulness, something that we might not think about at Christmas time, and that evidence is the fulfillment of prophecy surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. And I want to try to answer two questions for us today. What reasonable conclusions can we draw from the fulfillment of prophecy, and what does it mean for me this Christmas? What does it mean for us? Those two questions. It's fitting, I think, as we start the Christmas season in this time of anticipation that we look at, at, at these prophecies which anticipated the birth of Jesus Christ. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, and I want to point out um, a phrase that occurs six times in the first uh, three chapters of the book of Matthew. Um, I believe we usually read right over it. We don't necessarily stop to consider the significance of it. The phrase goes something like this. This happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So let's look at these six verses. Chapter 1, verse 22 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Chapter 2, 5, For so it is written by the prophet. Chapter 2.15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Chapter 2.17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 2.23, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Chapter 3.3, 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. This phrase keeps coming up again and again, over and over. Why? Matthew is drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus' coming to earth isn't just some story. It's the miraculous fulfillment of prophecies foretold hundreds of years before his birth. And the fact that he repeats it six times in such a short space is like a huge neon sign. Like, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. Matthew's saying, hey, Pay attention. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ that was foretold. He's the Savior and the King that God said would come. 
Now, before we look at the prophecies, we need to understand the rules for prophecy. In order for a prophecy to be a true prophecy, it has to meet these three rules. Number one, it has to be regarding a future event. So that's pretty obvious. If I said to you, Sarah is going to wear a teal sweater today, um, that's no, because it already happened, right? So it has to be regarding a future event. But um, what if I said... um, what if I said Sarah is going to sit in that seat in the front row? We're going to sit in the front row next Sunday. That's a future event, but we have a problem, right? Because my family sits in that space every week. So the second rule is it has to be specific enough to rule out chance, right? So if I said Sarah's going to sit in the front, that's so general. We don't know if I just got lucky or if I really knew, especially since we sit there all the time. But what if I said to you that Sarah's going to sit in the middle section, eight rows back, third seat from the left, and she's going to sit down at precisely 1023, not a minute later, not a minute before, and she's going to be wearing a Yoda costume. (laughs) Not only would that be hilarious, it would be specific enough to rule out chance. The more specific a prophecy is, the harder it is to fulfill and the less likely it is to happen by chance. That's rule number two. Rule number three is it has to come true. I can sit here and make specific prophecies all day long about future events, but if it doesn't come true, then it doesn't matter. So I want you to turn back one page in your Bible from from the book of Matthew, right? So you turn back one page and you see this white space in between the Old and the New Testament. You see that white space there? That white space represents about 400 years, about 400 years between the time that the Old Testament was written and the time that the New Testament was written. In other words, it was written that the, the Old Testament was written hundreds of years before a single word in the New Testament was penned. This is important because it means every prophecy in the Old Testament about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled was written down hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. That means they all passed rule number one. And it means that these prophecies were not simply made up by Jesus' followers. They couldn't go back and change things to make it look like Jesus fulfilled these prophecies because the Bible had already been translated into Greek. It'd been, it's, the Septuagint was around. It was in circulation. So they couldn't go back and alter it to make it look like Jesus fulfilled them. So turn back to chapter 1 of Matthew, and let's look at some of these prophecies. And I'm going to move through these pretty quickly, so hang on to your seats. Uh, Starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What's a genealogy? A genealogy is a family tree. It's a person's family tree. So it's your your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, and back and back and back and back and back. All these people in your family tree, right? Why does Matthew start this way? Because God made it very clear who the Messiah's ancestors were going to be. And the very first thing Matthew wants to do in his gospel is to prove that Jesus fulfills these prophecies. So in Genesis 2, uh, 18, God said the Messiah would be Abraham's son. In 21, 12, God said the Messiah would be Isaac's son. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, so he eliminates all of Ishmael's descendants. It's got to be from Isaac's descendants. In Genesis 28, 
God said the Messiah would be Jacob's son. So we eliminate all of Esau's descendants. Genesis 49.10, God said the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Okay, uh, Jacob had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And God said that he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. That eliminates 11 out of the 12 tribes of Israel. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, we learn that the Messiah is going to be the son of Jesse. Jeremiah 23.5, God said the Messiah would be the son of David. Jesse had eight sons. God eliminates seven of them. It's got to be David's son. Now, let's recap. We could look at other scriptures that say the same thing, but God said the Messiah is going to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he'd be from the tribe of Judah, that he'd be a descendant of Jesse and David. That's six specific prophecies regarding the Messiah's ancestors. Now, let's read a little bit more of chapter one in Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Why does he pick out Judah? Judah, the father of Perez, and so on and so on. And it continues till we get to the end of the list where we find Jesus listed. Now, this demonstrates uh, that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of who the Messiah's ancestors would be. That's how Matthew chooses to start his gospel. And we usually skip over chapter 1 because, quite frankly, it's kind of boring to just read a list of names. Amen, somebody. You know you're guilty. I am too, right? So this is part of the Christmas story. It's part of establishing who Jesus is, his identity. Then Matthew continues with the historical account surrounding Jesus' birth. Speaking through the prophet uh, Isaiah, God said that the Messiah was going to be born of a virgin and that they would call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's Isaiah 7:14. So Matthew goes on and he describes how Jesus was born. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, he's very careful to point out that she's a virgin. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 22 and 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus was born of a virgin. They called him Emmanuel, just as the prophet Isaiah, inspired by God, had foretold. Speaking through the prophet Micah, God said the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem. That means God eliminates all the other cities of the earth for the birthplace of the Messiah. Narrows it down to just one. And then Matthew tells us exactly where Jesus was born. Chapter 2, verse 1. Look there with me. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, because Caesar Augustus decided to take a census of his people, Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem in order to register, and that's where Jesus was born. I love that God takes the plans of wicked rulers and uses them to accomplish his plants. You know he's still doing that today? Isn't that a great encouragement for us today? So Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and this fulfilled what was foretold in Micah 5.2, which Matthew quotes to prove his point. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Herod, the king of Israel, is told by the wise men uh, that, that the king 
or the Messiah had been born. And there was a misunderstanding. Uh, many people thought he was going to be an earthly king, and so Herod starts freaking out because he thinks he's going to be overthrown. So he tells the wise men, hey, when you find him, come back and tell me where he is because I want to worship him too, winky winky. He's totally lying, liar. He's planning on killing him, right? So the angel warns the wise men in a dream, don't go back to Herod. So they don't. They go home by a different route, right? So Herod's out of luck. He doesn't know which kid is the Messiah. Does that stop Herod? No. He's like, all right, I know what I'll do. I'll just kill every male child that's two years old and younger in and around the region of Bethlehem. It's absolutely horrific. It's horrible. But in doing so, Herod unwittingly fulfills what God predicted through the prophet Jeremiah. We see this in Matthew 2, 16 through 18. Well, an angel warns Joseph in a dream what's going to happen, and he says, get out of here. Go to Egypt. And so he does. He takes Mary and Jesus. They escape to Egypt. And when he returns, it fulfills what God predicted through the prophet Hosea. We see this in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. When Mary and Joseph come back to Israel, they go to Nazareth in Galilee to try to avoid trouble. And that's where Jesus is raised. This fulfills the prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. We see this in Matthew 2, uh, 19 through 23. That's three more prophecies. The children are slaughtered, his parents move to and come out of Egypt, and Jesus grew up in Nazareth. We could add to this that God predicted that the Messiah would be preceded by a messenger who would announce his coming, which is fulfilled by John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. Now, that's just a brief summary of the Christmas story that is uh, Matthew's gospel. And we just highlighted 12 specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, and we haven't even scratched the surface yet. I'll remind you, Jesus fulfilled over 60 specific prophecies about the Messiah, all fulfilled in his life. Now, I know that we moved through that really fast, but I want you to see this point one of the main points that Matthew draws in the beginning of his gospel that he wants us to see right off the bat is that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. He is the Christ foretold. Now, that leads me to ask the question, our first question, what reasonable conclusions can we draw from the fulfillment of these prophecies? The fact that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies tells us two very important things. God wrote the Bible and Jesus is the Messiah. First, God wrote the Bible. This, this book, this book right here, this is not just any other book. It was not written by men. It was written through men by God himself. Hmm, wait a minute. You might be saying, how do you know, Michael? How do you know that God wrote the Bible and that all this stuff didn't just happen by chance? How do you know Jesus didn't just get lucky? Well, that's a good question. I'm very glad you asked me this morning. I'm thankful for the interaction. <laughs> We've got to make sure that Jesus meets rule number two, right? Now, to answer that question and find out, let's look at what the odds are of just eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person by chance. There's a mathematics and statistics professor who answers that question. His name is Peter Stoner. He tells us the odds of just eight prophecies coming true by chance would be one in one times 10 to the 17th power. Now, that's not one in a million. That's not one in a billion. 
that's not even one in a trillion. It's not one in a hundred trillion. It's not one in a thousand trillion. That's one in 100,000 trillion chances. That number is so gigantic, we have no idea what that means without some kind of a, a picture. And so the statistics professor gives us one. He says, if you, uh, in order to help us understand this staggering probability, suppose we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. Texas is huge. It's 268,000 square miles. It's gigantic. So you take 10 to the 17th silver dollars. He says they will cover all of the state, every inch of it, two feet deep. Two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars, and imagine we could stir it all up, the entire state somehow, all over blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wants to, but he must bend over and pick up just one silver dollar and say that that is the right one. What is the chance that he would have the, of getting the right one? The same chance that the prophets would have in writing these eight prophecies and having them come true in any one man if they wrote them according to their own wisdom. That is awesome. In other words... <laughs> If the prophets made these things up themselves, the chances that just eight of their predictions would come true in any one man by chance is one in 100,000 trillion chances. The odds are so big, there's no way that even eight prophecies could be fulfilled by chance, but Jesus didn't just fulfill eight or the 12 that we talked about today. He fulfilled over 60 prophecies. Isaiah 46 9 and 10 says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. God says, I'm the only one able to predict the future. See, there's this miracle that's happening in the Christmas story that we often overlook. It's a miracle that all of these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ because only God could do it. And the fact that these prophecies come true tell us that this book wasn't written by men. It was written through men by God himself. That means this book isn't just any book. It's perfect. It is the truth. It can be trusted. Every word. What it says about Jesus can be trusted. What it says about salvation can be trusted. What it says about what is right and wrong and good and evil can be trusted. What it says about the best, most beautiful, most wonderful way to live can be trusted. Everything in this book can be trusted because it was written by God. And we're not the first Christians to deal with the accusation that our faith is a myth. Actually, Peter addresses it in 2 Peter chapter. Uh, 2, verses 16 through 21, he comes right out and he says, we don't follow cleverly devised myths. He says, we're eyewitnesses of things that took place in Jesus' life. And then he points to the fact that they witnessed the transfiguration. When Jesus was up on the mountain and he reveals himself in glory, he's shining in all of his majesty, and the voice is born from heaven and says, this is my son. Peter, James, and John, they all saw it. They all witnessed it. Now, we often say, man, there's, there's really nothing better than, than seeing a miracle. If I could see a miracle, then I'd believe, right? It's like, I wish I could be back in Jesus' day so I could have witnessed some of these miracles. We elevate this, right? Nothing better. But I'm just blown away by what Peter says next in verse 19. He says, and we have something more 
sure. Hold on, wait a second. Y'all saw Jesus transfigured, shining in glory and majesty on the mountain, and there's something better than that? Really? Peter, astonish me. He says, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter says, the fulfillment of prophecy is a more sure evidence than witnessing a miracle. It's amazing. And every one of us has access to that as believers because we have the word of God. And then he gives a reason. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These prophecies prove that the Bible is God's word. It's true. It's trustworthy. The second thing that the fulfillment proves is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world that God told us was come, would come. Time out. Wait a minute, Michael. Are you saying that because Jesus fulfilled these prophecies, it proves that Jesus is the Savior and King of the world? Yes. That is exactly what I am saying this morning. It's not the only piece of evidence that Jesus is the Savior, but it's certainly one of them that the apostles themselves pointed to, as we just saw. And in my mind, it's extremely convincing because only God could do it. Think about this. We know that the prophecies were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. That takes care of rule number one. We know that Jesus fulfilled not just eight, but over 60 specific prophecies. And there's no way they could have been fulfilled by chance. That takes care of rule number two. And that all of them came true in Jesus Christ. That takes care of rule number three. So the logical conclusion is that first, God inspired men to write the Bible. And two, that the Christmas story isn't a myth. It's true. Jesus really is the Messiah, the Savior. It's the atheists who have it wrong. The great irony is that it's the atheists who are clinging to a myth. The myth that God doesn't exist. Saying that God does not exist is the fake news. It's exactly backwards. The virgin birth, the angels in the sky, the star that leads the wise men, the very fact that God himself comes to earth as a human being, born as a helpless baby, the incarnation, all of these things are absolutely amazing, and they're absolutely true. They're absolutely amazing, and they're absolutely true, and there's good reason to believe it like the fulfillment of numerous specific prophecies written hundreds of years in advance, all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, what does that mean for me this Christmas? That's our second major question. We have to ask this question. What does the fulfillment of prophecy mean for me? Why did God choose to become a man? Why did he take the form of a baby and come to earth? Why did this Messiah come? Well, Matthew one twenty one tells us he was given the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. That is the whole purpose of Jesus coming to earth in the Christmas story. Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Just as we sang a moment ago, God and sinners reconciled. Not simply that Jesus was born, but that he came to rescue us from punishment for our sin. 
our sin, our rebellion against God, breaking his commands, they separate us from God. And that distance is so great, it cannot be climbed. It cannot be overcome in our own strength. This world is so broken, so lost, so full of sin, we cannot climb our way to heaven. It literally took God himself coming to earth to rescue us. Every sinner stands under the wrath of a holy God. We deserve God's condemnation. But Jesus came and he died in our place for our sins, taking the punishment we deserve so that we wouldn't have to. So that anyone who turns from sin and trusts in Jesus Christ would be forgiven and have eternal life. It is awesome. We ought never, ever to grow cold to that truth. And the shadow of the cross lies across the manger. We throw a party every year called Christmas to celebrate the work that God began by sending Jesus Christ on Christmas, a work accomplished by Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection, and a work that will be completed finally when he returns. That's what the party's about. We praise God for deliverance from sin, and that is available to anyone, anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save them. We praise God for deliverance from sin. We praise God for his love and this hope of heaven that we have, all undeserved, all by grace. It's just mind-blowing. Jesus truly is the Savior that God promised would come, he fills, fulfills these prophecies and proves that he's the Messiah. How do we apply this to our lives then this, this Christmas? Well, number one, first, don't doubt it, believe it. If you've never turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, I'm pleading with you this morning, do it right now. Do it today. Turn away from sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you. He really is who he says that he is. He is Savior and Lord. He is King over all. Come to him. He's asking us today, you and I, the same question he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? It's the most important question you will ever answer. How you answer that question will determine whether you spend eternity in heaven or hell. Jesus is the Messiah. He's Savior and Lord. So ask God to forgive you. Put your faith in Christ to save you, and he will. That's why he came. For my brothers and sisters in the room, I hope that this message strengthens your faith. I want you to know that we've got good reason for believing that the Bible is God's word and Jesus is the Savior. And the fulfillment of prophecy is just one example. The Christmas story stands up to thoughtful examination. God's given us the prophetic word to prove it's the truth in order to strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. So for you too, dear Christian, believe these things. That's number one. Number two, don't get sidetracked. Celebrate it. We've got the greatest reason to celebrate. Make sure you're celebrating Christ above all. The atheists of America want us to believe that celebrating Christmas without, without Christ is just as good, if not better. Let's make it clear that's not true. It's so easy to get sidetracked by the shopping and the decorating and the parties and the presents and a hundred other things. Those things are not bad. 
but they're not what we're celebrating. As we kick off this Christmas series, let's make sure that Christ is the centerpiece of our celebration. Let's make sure Christ is the centerpiece of our celebration this Christmas. Third, don't hide it, share it. Atheists cannot offer anything to anyone beyond the material. Jesus came to save people and to give them eternal life. The only true and lasting comfort and joy comes from Jesus Christ. The only true and lasting peace, hope, comes from faith in Jesus Christ. The forgiveness for our sins, which we so desperately need, can only come through Jesus Christ. This is the greatest gift. It is the greatest news that you will ever receive. And Jesus tells us to go tell the world. So when we talk with our non-believing family and friends this Christmas, let's tell them about Jesus. Let's point them to Jesus. Let's tell them who he is and why he came. The next few weeks in this Christmas season, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us, brothers and sisters. So pray for God to make you bold and wisdom or, and, and winsome. Go tell it on the mountains. That's not just a song that we sing at Christmas. That's a reminder of the mission that that Christ has given to us to make his gospel known. Amen? Amen? Jesus came in fulfillment of prophecy, proving that the Bible is God's word and that he's Christ the King, the Savior of the world. Believe it, celebrate it, share it. If that's your desire today, then I want you to pray with me right now. Let's pray. Pray with me. God, I thank you that Jesus sent, or that you sent Jesus Christ to seek and to save me. And God, I ask that you would help me treasure your son, Jesus Christ, more than anything else. Not just during Christmas, but all year long. God, would you change my life however you need to so that I would treasure Christ above all? Give me the opportunity and the boldness to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people I know who desperately need it. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.